0: what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, and welcome to episode 251 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with United States Senator Ben Cardin, a former congressman from the 3rd District, former Speaker of the Maryland House of Delegates, former delegate from District uh, 5 and 42 in Baltimore City, and the current commissioner and former chairman on the United States Helsinki Commission, also known as the Commission on Security and Cooperation in Europe. Senator Cardin is the ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and is a senior member of the Environment and Public Works Committee. Senator Cardin, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Well,
1: Jordan, it's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Thank you. So the first question I'd like to pose to you is what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why?
1: Well, obviously, as a member of the United States Senate, it gives me an opportunity uh, to get involved in matters of, of public interest. That's why I'm here. I'm here to try to help people deal with problems. I, one of the things I've always enjoyed is when someone comes into my office and presents a problem, a problem of for our environment or for education or for uh, dealing with uh, uh, minority populations or dealing with a community how can we solve those problems? How can the government help solve those problems? How can the legislature help solve those problems? So from my early days in the state legislature where groups would come in and say, look, we have a community problem, we need help, uh, can you help us? I would try to figure out a way to do that and recognize that I was given that chance by being in the state legislature and now in the United States Senate.
0: And now you've actually been exposed to public service since basically your birth, with your father being a, having been a delegate, and your uncle, uh, Maurice Cardin, having been a delegate, in the Maryland House of Delegates. In fact, when you first were elected to the Maryland House of Delegates at the uh, tender age of uh, 23, your father said to you, you have some, something that people have worked a lifetime for as a delegate, and you have to understand what sort of difference you can make. Can you speak about that family legacy and what initially led uh, to Maurice deciding to step down and you deciding to enter public service as a law student?
1: Well, I grew up in a family of community service. My father was extremely active. He belonged to many different organizations. He had lots of leadership positions from our local synagogue to uh, being a circuit court judge. So I saw his commitment to try to help our community. I always was impressed what he wanted to do to help other people, that people would come up to him and he would give them the type of advice or or to try to to help them in their lives. My mother was extremely active in so many different charitable organizations. So it was part of my... uh, upbringing was to give back to our community. So when there was an opportunity to, to run for the state legislature and I was able to win a seat in the state legislature at a very young age, my father did tell me that people work a long time in order to get this position. You now have a tool in being able to help people that many people work their entire lives and are unable to achieve. So take advantage of it.
0: So you were able to take advantage of it to quite an extent that you were really impressed your colleagues quite quickly. In fact, at the age of 35, you became the youngest speaker at the Maryland House of Delegates, quite an accomplishment. Your other fellow uh, junior United States Senator, Chris Van Hollen, first ran for the House of Delegates his first time at just a few years younger than when you became the leader of the Maryland House of Delegates. Can you speak about uh, that process of becoming... Uh, integrated into the Maryland House of Delegates and how it was that you were able to rise to the age to, to the to the leadership position of Speaker of the House of Delegates after just over a decade in office.
1: Well, when I was elected to the Maryland House of Delegates, I, I formed alliances with uh, friends from around the state and recognized that even though we had our regional differences, I represented Baltimore City. Baltimore City had very, very serious problems on school funding and equalization and trying to deal with, uh, with, with uh, law enforcement and uh, uh, community protection. Uh, I was able to get legislators from other parts of Maryland to come and visit Baltimore and to understand our problems. I visited their communities. Uh, so we worked to try to help all communities. I was able to get a, a major school financing bill done that helped students from Montgomery County to Baltimore City. I was able to deal with our tax structure at the time we were really suffering under a property tax system where people were being taxed out of their homes. And I was able to work on a bill that allowed people to be able to stay in their homes. Uh, and I recognized I could get things done by working with other people. So. Uh, I was fortunate. I was able to become uh, first vice chairman of the Ways and Means Committee in my second term, and then chairman, and then later Speaker of the House. It's a great position. It gave me a chance to to work uh, with an agenda. We would establish uh, what we thought was important to get done for our state, mm-hmm. and then we worked as a team to get it done. So Baltimore City
0: is the historic locus of power in the state of Maryland. I'm, I'm wondering how you were able to... Uh, to, to generate the support from your colleagues from other parts of the state, especially areas of the state such as Montgomery County that had a rising population and increasing wealth who are really interested in getting more for their jurisdiction and moving power base away from Baltimore, how is it that you were able to convince other, convince your colleagues that it was in their interest to support you and that by making you speaker you would actually uh, advance the, in, their interest in their constituency and work on property tax reform that would help them, that would work on school financing formulas that would help the eastern shore, southern Maryland, and western Maryland?
1: I think I was able to do that by working on specific issues. We worked on, one of my early issues I worked on is uh, I visited a, a state institution and saw children with developmental dis- disabilities and saw the way the state was taking care of these children basically in a, a warehouse type setting. Uh-huh. Uh, it was applying to children whether they lived in Montgomery County, Prince George's County on the Eastern Shore, Western Maryland or Baltimore City, uh, it was a common problem. so. I met with legislators from around the state and said, this got to change. We, we don't do these, this to for, for the children. We've got, we got to provide the right services. And we were able to, uh, I guess, uh, form a bond where we uh, understood each other's problems and recognized that we could help each other. I did the same thing with school finance. My, my dear friend was Lucy Mauer, a legislator from Montgomery County. Montgomery County was the wealthiest jurisdiction. Baltimore City was one of the poorest jurisdictions. And we said, look, there's got to be a way that we help the children of Baltimore City without hurting the children of Montgomery County. So we worked together to get that done, and we're successful in achieving that. We had a problem in Maryland uh, uh, with our health care system. We wanted to to avoid having charity hospitals, so we developed our own system known as an all-payer rate structure for hospital care. Yes, it was important for Baltimore City, which had a large concentration of poor people, but it was also important for the Eastern Shore, where they had a large concentration of poor people, that it helped all communities if we could have a seamless system of health care where hospitals were available for all. So I think I found enough in common mm-hmm. where people recognized that we all could help each other, uh, and I must tell you I was very proud that probably my two greatest champions in the Maryland legislature mm-hmm. uh, Paul Wisengoff, one of the most conservative members uh, of the uh, General Assembly, and uh, uh, my friend from, uh, from from Montgomery County, one of the most uh, progressive uh, members, uh, Don Robertson. So I was able to get, I think, philosophically and geographically, I was able to to avoid those types of divisions.
0: Now you mentioned health care. I know that's been an issue of profound importance to you. You were instrumental in passing the state uh, chip expansion, the dental chip expansion after the DeMonte driver uh, incident with Medicaid. Um, You speak about the all-payer rate setting system unique in the nation with uh, the only state to have a Medicare waiver for this particular all-payer rate setting system. And I know that currently uh, in the United States Senate, there was a defeat of uh, President Trump's Uh, initiative to repeal Obamacare. I know that you've now invited an invitation to Republican colleagues to join you in reforming health care and making this, bending this cost care curve. Can you speak about current efforts that you're working on to make sure that health care is not only going to lead to universal coverage, but also adequate access and contain costs across the whole nation? Uh,
1: Yes, and I think the more that you can point out that we are dealing with real lives and real people, the the more effective you can be. So in 2007, we had a, a tragic situation in, in Maryland where DeMonte Driver, a 12-year-old who lived in Prince George's County, Maryland, died because he could not get care for a tooth problem. Uh, he had an abscessed tooth. Uh, his mom tried to get him to a dentist It was uh, because he didn't have coverage. He couldn't find a dentist that would treat him. Uh, his condition became so severe that he was admitted to the hospital because the abscess got into his brain. Uh, he had two emergency operations, spending about a quarter of a million dollars. The treatment he needed was an $80 um, tooth extraction. Uh, he lost his life. So we used DeMonte Driver as a way to change the health care system in this country so that every child in America could have access to oral health, to dental care. And today, that's in the Children's Health Insurance Program and the Affordable Care Act. And I think most members of Congress are proud that we have that now in our law. So I think when you can point that out, I also was responsible uh, in the Affordable Care Act to get the National Institute for Minority Health and Health Disparities because we knew there were disparities in our health care system. So. We are now working on those issues. And, again, I formed the same type of coalitions to make sure that we have a seamless system. So for Maryland, we want to protect our all-payer rate model so we don't have charity hospitals. We've been able to do that, and we're continuing to do that. And we have now a new pilot program that we that was approved just two years ago that continues the all-payer rate structure. And one of my highest priorities now as the senior senator for Maryland is to protect that health policy in this country so Maryland can continue that all-payer rate structure. Now, I'm sure that
0: votes on on the Affordable Care Act have been tough, probably not too tough since that's something that you believe in, uh, But one vote that I know has been among the toughest votes you've ever had to cast throughout your political career has been your opposition to the Iran bill. Now, you voted with President Obama most of the time that he was in office. On his particular bill, you opposed him. I know that it caused you a particular duress. You had written public op-eds about your rationale for opposing the bill. Can you speak about the experience of going through your opposition to that Iran bill and how you were able to arrive at that conclusion?
1: Well, the, the Iran uh, vote was a tough vote. It was a tough vote because our objective was to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear weapon state. That was an important objective. Uh, that's what President Obama was achieve, trying to achieve. And the best way to do that is through negotiation. So I favored the process that was being used. I thought, however, that because the agreement allowed Iran to continue to enrich uranium, that they would be so close to being able to break out to a nuclear weapon that this agreement won't ultimately prevent them from becoming a nuclear weapon state. So I oppose the agreement. It went through the process. The support was there for the agreement to go forward. It's now the uh, agreement in effect, and I want to make sure it continues in effect so that Iran does not have an excuse to break out build a nuclear weapon. Now
0: we do have like a North Korea that does have a, uh, that is a rogue nation, does have nuclear capabilities, would be the example of what would happen if Iran uh, were to get a nuclear weapon. It might be analogous to North Korea. How do we handle North Korea?
1: North Korea, is a, it cries out for what I call a diplomatic surge, where the United States recognizes they need to change the calculation in North Korea on uh, developing a nuclear weapon. The Kim regime right now in North Korea believes they need a nuclear weapon in order to protect their regime against the United States, who they believe are trying to end the Kim regime. China does not want to see a democratic country on their border, so although they may not like the Kim regime, they do not want to see the Kim regime uh, collapse. So what we need to do to change North Korea's calculation is to change China's calculation. So China recognizes it's in their interest to get North Korea to change their policy on nuclear weapons, which China can do, but the United States would then make it clear to China that this is about nuclear North Korea. It's not about bringing down the Kim regime.
0: Now, uh, going back uh, as we approach the end of this episode, um, I know that uh, you've had quite a bit of your life where you've dedicated yourself to public service. As we mentioned earlier, even since your earliest days, you've been exposed to public service through elected office. Um, I'd like to ask for a moment uh, about your motivations, but also... Uh, any regrets you may have anything that you've given up in order to advance the public interest Uh, i know that you are an attorney you may have been able to do very well and i'm sure you have friends who've done very well financially uh and some individuals who have not been able to do as well because they were in elected office and couldn't dedicate themselves to the firm can you speak about any any sacrifices you've had to make in the pursuit of elected office
1: Well, I I think the toughest decision I ever had to make was running for the House of Representatives because I knew that by running for the House of Representatives I would become uh, a full-time legislator that I would be giving up my law career and would really be a a, a full-time legislator. Uh, That was a tough decision because I like law. I love law. I Mm love practicing law. Uh, I I really feel that uh, it's a great opportunity to help people in the practice that I had. I represent a lot of small business owners, a lot of individuals, and I really enjoyed that practice. Uh, I also led an effort to make sure that, as lawyers, uh, we carried out our responsibility to help those through pro bono that that didn't have the resources, and led an effort that requires all law students to uh, take a, a clinical program in law school to help Poor people, but also to be sensitized to the responsibility as, as lawyers. So I enjoyed law, and that was a tough decision. But I have no regrets. I uh, uh, when you wherever you are in life, you make judgments, and you can be um, a lawyer, you can be a teacher, you can be a senator, and you can decide what's important in your life. Yes, because of the responsibilities you take as a lawyer, or a teacher, or, or as a senator. You'll have to give up certain things. You'll you'll have to be voting a night where you might rather be attending your grandchild's uh, soccer game. Yes, that happens, and I regret that I can't do more of what I would like to do in that regard. But you set your own priorities. I go home every night. So you know, being with family to me is very important. I find time to be with my family, uh, to celebrate um, Uh, occasions and to have dinner together. So you can make your time available and make your own tough decisions. Uh, I was told when I was first elected to the Maryland legislature that unless I spent my nights in Annapolis, I could never succeed. Well, I went home every night and I became Speaker of the House. So you make your own judgments as to what you believe is important. And to me, It was important for me to carry out my responsibilities in the public offices I've held, but also my family responsibilities, and uh, I think that I balanced that the way I wanted to, so I have no regrets.
0: A final question, would you speak to the people of Maryland? Uh, as you reflect on your changing constituency from 120,000 people to 6 million as it is today and speak about your legacy of public service what does it mean for the people of Maryland that you have been elected office what are you leaving for them
1: well, that's a great question. When you, when I represented a, a smaller group of people, I, you, you, know, you could you could go to someone's living room at night and have a town hall discussion, and and go to someone else's house the next night, and you could go to a community meeting, uh, and and it was you, you had time for that. Representing all the people of Maryland, I can't possibly get to every neighborhood association meeting or or everyone's request to attend a, a different event. So you really have to rely more on other means to understand people's needs. So it's not as personal. And I must tell you, I really enjoyed being a state legislator because it was much more hands-on and personal, and you could really control an agenda pretty quickly. In the Senate, where we're dealing with global issues on a whole, and representing 6 million people in a state, it's not as personal, it's not as hands-on. But it's certainly, in many respects, much more rewarding because of the, the subjects that you're dealing with. I hope that my, my my legacy is that each of us can make a difference. I believe very much in what Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. said, that we're all here for a purpose, that we're here to, to, to do what we can to help other people, and collectively we can bring about change. So I hope that I've been able, through my service uh, in the Senate and in Congress and in the state legislature, is to speak out for people who otherwise voices wouldn't be heard. I've made human rights a major priority for me. I'm proud of the, the laws that I've passed in this country that protect uh, 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 people around the world and their struggles for human rights. Uh, I hope that people recognize that it did make a difference to get... Oral health care for children. That It does make a difference to, to clean up our environment in the Chesapeake Bay. It does make a difference to try to keep seniors in their home environment. These are all bills that I was successful in getting enacted uh, that we can fight corruption with more transparency, another bill that I was able to get done. So I, I can speak to the specific bills that I was able to get passed, but I, but I hope, again, my legacy is that you can make a difference that if you're given the opportunity to serve in the United States Senate, that you can make a difference for people, you can give hope to a lot of people. And the greatest compliments I receive is when I travel throughout Maryland or throughout the United States or throughout the world and people come up to me and tell me their individual stories and how their lives have been changed policies that I've been involved in trying to get done here in Washington.
0: That has been United States Senator Ben Cardin, former Congressman, Speaker of the Maryland House of Delegates, a delegate, and a ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, who speaks about having an impact on real lives and real people, from advancing human rights to helping seniors, saving the Chesapeake Bay, advancing the cause of children's health care. He speaks... About being what his mother and his wife, Myrna, always says uh, ought to be the goal in life, which is to really be a mensch, uh, <laughs> to be a good man, and to work on Takuna Lum. So, with that, uh, Senator, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today.
1: It's a real pleasure, Jordan. Thank you very much.
0: This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com and on iTunes. Leave a review of this podcast on iTunes and listen on Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Should you wish to comment on this episode, you're welcome to leave a voicemail at 240-630-0380. And the first three minutes of that voicemail may be played in future episodes of Public Interest Podcast. Should you wish to support the podcast, you're welcome to leave a contribution in an amount that you feel comfortable with at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you next time.